To be human is to long to belong. We all long for inclusion and recognition. We want a seat at the table. We don't want to be found on the outside looking in. For you Hamilton fans like Aaron Burr, we want to be in the room where it happened. That longing to be included, accepted in the inner circle is in all of us. In fact, we can all probably think of moments right now where we felt the pain of being excluded or where we felt the exhilaration of being included. The painful moments might be in elementary school at recess when we were the last kid picked for the team or in junior high loading the bus for the field trip and being beaten by other kids who jostled for the back seats of the bus only to find that by the time we got there, there wasn't room for us. As adults, feeling excluded or overlooked can come from relationships, dumped or ghosted again, or from our workplaces, another rejection on the job search, or not being invited in to weigh in on important matters Burr, close the door on your way out. This longing is so strong in us, I wouldn't be surprised if me even listing some of these examples elicited some emotion for you. Just as the pain of being overlooked or passed over can be strong, the exhilaration of being included is just as powerful. We swoon at the words, can I buy you a drink? Why don't you join us for golf this Saturday at the club? Like a child's chest swelling with pride when they've learned a new skill, we swell with pride when good work gets acknowledged or when others communicate, we're glad you joined the team or the company or the family-in-law. Psychiatrist Kurt Thompson, a specialist in interpersonal neurobiology, says every person shows up in this world seeking to be seen by others. We all have a longing to belong. And here's the thing. The longing itself isn't bad. That's part of what it means to be made in God's image, to long for belonging, inclusion, relationship. The question is, what do we do with this longing? Most of us harness a lot of energy and resources to ensure we get those longings met. Driven by our fear of being left out or overlooked or passed over, we work hard to succeed. We perfect self-promotion strategies. We learn to schmooze and play the game and climb the ladder. We look out for number one. It's a doggy world out there. You better look out for yourself. Who else is gonna, going to if you don't? Nice guys finish last, Charlie Brown. We Minnesotans should know that as home to Charles Schultz himself. But do you ever get tired of having to make your way in the world? Isn't it at times too much to carry? Wouldn't it be nice to set that down, to find another way? And if we did that, would it mean we'd fall to the bottom? Our story today speaks to that very question, and in it, Jesus is going to offer us an alternative. He's going to give us a different worldview from which to operate. He invites us followers into a different way of living, and I want to be clear here, it's not because the longing itself is bad. 
Jesus isn't telling us to stop longing for belonging or inclusion or recognition. It's not something we can turn off like a faucet. Instead, he's going to show us what to do with that longing and where it can actually be met in a way that will satisfy. And once we have that new mindset, that new way of thinking, Jesus says it will spill over into our behavior. The story Jesus uses to communicate this point is a story about a wedding reception or a wedding celebration, and specifically about the seating chart and the guest list. Now, I don't know about you, but for Andy and I, the seating chart and the guest list were two stressful parts of wedding planning. It's hard to limit guests. Some of you have had to plan weddings during COVID and it's been excruciating to reduce your guest list painfully to just 50 people or 25 people. And as to the seating chart, you're literally ranking your friends and family. Parents and grandparents, easy, table one. Uncle Ben, who you met when you were a baby, table 18 at the back of the room, right? It's still the case today that at special celebrations, weddings, retirement dinners, Who is invited and where they are seated says a lot about the person's rank and importance. The more front and center you are, the more important you are to the event. We're pretty accustomed to this playing out in musicals or concerts or sporting events. I, for one, am usually stuck in the nosebleed section, and I mean literally in the very last row. I'm just glad I got in. But some of you have a private box or a seat in the row behind home plate. And you've probably got some kind of status, or money, or both. This demonstration of the social pecking order by placement at the table was on steroids in the first century. Meals in antiquity both advertised and reinforced the social hierarchy. In first century Jewish culture, when this story takes place, you only invited people to your table who would enhance your social status or at least preserve it. You certainly wouldn't invite someone lower than you in status that would cause your own reputation and standing to plummet. Now watch how Jesus opposes that mentality and offers a surprising alternative. The story begins in Luke 14, verse 1. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, Jesus is likely sharing the meal after the synagogue service on the Sabbath, much like we might invite someone to our house pre-COVID or out to dinner, you know, lunch after service. Now, notice the host is a wealthy, prominent religious leader, likely a member of the Sanhedrin or ruling Jewish council. This is the place to be. These are the people to cozy up to. They've got connections. They can introduce you. And clearly, that's what's on the mind of these guests. They're jostling for the coveted seats. Luke 14, 7 through 14. When Jesus noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come to you and say, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, 
Take the lowest place so that when your coast comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all the guests, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to the host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers and sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, Invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Well, let's cross Jesus' name off the list for loan officer and CFO, right? What is he thinking? Give to those who cannot repay you? And does this mean we need to feel guilty if we don't have homeless people or people with disabilities at our Easter dinner or kids' birthday parties? Is true humility shoving ourselves down to the bottom so we're never recognized or starving our ambitions because they're inherently bad? Sadly, I think Jesus' words here are often misunderstood. We get distracted by these more surface-level issues, but Jesus is offering us a completely new mindset, a new way of being that when we live into it, we can actually experience what he describes in Matthew 11:30 of living lightly and freely. His way is the good way. So let's see if we can unpack what that is here. Did you notice there's two parts to Jesus' message? He addresses the guests first in verses 7 to 11, and then the hosts in verses 12 to 14. His message affects us both as recipients, yes, as well as givers, hosts. And each time, he, the format he uses is, don't do this, or this might happen, but do this, and this will happen. We're to exchange the potential for the certain. Let's look at how that pattern is reflected in the words to both guests and hosts. As guests, the question we have to deal with is, where should we choose to sit? <laughs> this meal has no seating assignment, so then the race is on for who's going to get closest to the guest of honor. Now, on the surface, it appears Jesus is just offering practical advice here, something you could read in an etiquette or business book. Better to aim low and hope for a promotion than to aim high and risk losing face. In fact, that's exactly the message of Proverbs 25, 6 to 7. It says, do not exalt yourself in the king's presence and do not claim a place among his great men. It is better for him to come and say to you, come up here, than to humiliate you before the nobles. Most of us would agree with this. Self-promotion in our society is not very attractive. We've all been around people who are full of themselves or who are presumptuous, and it can be nauseating. On the other hand, it's really gratifying when a lower-level person gets praised in front of the group. We all cheer in, is it book four of Harry Potter, at the last scene when Slytherin has won the House Cup and Malfoy's gloating, and then at the last moment, Dumbledore praises Neville for his courage and earns enough points to change the winner to Gryffindor. Jesus is doing more, though, 
than offering good advice here about how to relate with people socially. The point of these verses is not that Jesus is telling us how to beat the system and actually get ahead. He's not saying, hey, if you want to end up on top, make sure you do this. That's author and organizational psychologist Adam Grant's message in his book, Give and Take. The book talks about three types of workers, givers, takers, and matchers. And he shows how givers are the ones who, the ones who give their time to help others succeed. They're the ones who actually end up on top, even though they have to watch how much they give so it doesn't hurt their own performance. Now, I'm actually a huge fan of Adam Grant's work. I find it fascinating. But Jesus' message is different. Jesus is not trying to show us how we can end up on top by giving and starting down low. He's not telling us how to make sure we get honored. Instead, he's inviting us to stop seeking honor at all and instead entrust ourselves to God, to trust that he will honor us in the right way at the right time. Jesus invites us to allow honor to be bestowed on us by God. For Jesus, honor is given, not taken or pursued. Look at verse 11. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. One commentator notes that by using these passive verbs, will be humbled, will be exalted, is a linguistic way of making God the subject. Humbling and exalting are God's job. He is the one who sees all. We don't need to go through life looking to lift ourselves up. God will do it in the right way at the right time. Now, that doesn't mean we don't give our full attention and our full effort to our work or our responsibilities. We're serving God, so of course we give him our all. But it does mean we serve without regard for recognition. It means we leave our PR department in the hands of God who sees all. Every human being may show up seeking to be seen, but when we look to God, we see that he sees us. He is the God who honors, the God who humbles and exalts. We hear this message again and again from the psalmist, vindicate me, O God, my hope is in you. You are my God in whom I've put my trust. What would it look like for you, for me, to have such a deep trust in the God who sees us that we go about our work and our lives knowing God will reward us? Doesn't that sound like a freeing way to live? Maybe that's part of what Jesus means when he says his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Maybe you will want to say to God today, God, show me the ways I'm trying to control or manage my future, my career, my family, my kids' success, my health. Instead, I want to put it in your hands. I want to trust you. Show me how to do that. If you want to go deeper in this, I highly recommend the practice of silence. As Richard Foster says, silence is one of the deepest disciplines of the spirit because it puts the stopper on all self-justification. 
So here's an experiment. Try going just one day without defending yourself or your actions. I think you'll be surprised at how challenging that can be. And again, the goal isn't to get rid of the desire to be understood. The goal is to let God be your justifier. If guests are invited to live freely with our reputations, our careers, our success, the hosts are invited to give freely. As hosts, the question we have to deal with is, who gets invited in the first place? There's a natural flow here to what Jesus is saying. If we, can, if we can first experience his gracious welcome as recipients and trust him with our lives in this way, then we are able to extend that grace to others. We are not so consumed with looking out for ourselves. We are more generous with others. And that's what Jesus is advocating in verses 12 to 14, radical generosity. Generosity that doesn't make sense, that no bank would approve. Check this out. In the first century, the one thing the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind in verse 13 have in common is that they cannot repay this favor. Traditionally, when you invited someone to a feast, they would be obligated to reciprocate. Now, some of you may send Christmas cards. I'm not a Christmas card sender. Maybe that's why you haven't received one from me. Don't feel bad. <laughs> but I've actually been sitting with people when they're opening their Christmas cards and they're like, oh, we got one from this one. We got to add them to our list. It's this obligation and reciprocity. In Jesus' day, meals were like that. They were reciprocal. You would never invite someone who couldn't return the favor. You'd lose money because you're feeding them and they're not feeding you and you're shaming them by forcing them to turn down the invitation since they don't have the resources to reciprocate. Now, Jesus isn't saying here we shouldn't invite our friends and family over for a meal. Remember where he did his first miracle in the book of John? At a wedding, among friends and family. Having people over of similar social status is fine. He's just saying, let's not call that generosity. True generosity is giving to people without any expectation or hope of return. I like how William Barclay described it in his commentary. He said, giving can be motivated by four factors. We can give out of one, a sense of duty or obligation. I think this is probably how most of us pay our taxes. This is something we have to do. It's the law. But giving can also be motivated by self-interest. And I think we do this a lot, sometimes consciously, sometimes unconsciously, as a kind of investment. If I do this for you, then I've just put an entry of credit on the ledger of the account, and now you owe me. I can cash that in when I need it. Barclay says, that isn't generosity. That's rationalized selfishness. I would say calculated selfishness. Some giving, and this has sometimes been the problem with Christians seeking to give with global partners, can be done in a superior way, where we give to make ourselves feel better or to emphasize our power. And Barclay says, frankly, it'd be better not to give at all than to give in that way. But Jesus' way of thinking about giving is different. Jesus says giving 
is an uncontrollable outflow of love, a giving whereby we are so aware of the ways we have received love and grace and welcome and acceptance that we cannot help but spill over onto those around us. It's a giving that expects nothing in return, no strings attached, no repayment plan. Because again and again, though that person is not able to repay us, we are trusting God to repay or reward us in the right way at the right time. Verse 14, you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. I think if we're honest today, how much of our giving fits in that last category? I'll admit I'm a working parent with active kids, no family in town, not a ton of wiggle room financially. I'm a really good giver in the second category. I'm really good at offering to drive a carpool for you so you can drive for me. And that's fine. We all have to arrange our lives and make it work. But Jesus says, let's not mistake that for generosity. The real test of generosity is how much do we give knowing we will get nothing back. And some of you are really good at that. Bless you. In my time here at City Church, I have been privileged to, um, I guess, be the messenger of anonymous gifts given by some of you to others, and it is a beautiful thing. This is one reason why Jesus is a fan of anonymous giving, because the receiver can't give anything in return when they don't know who the giver was. They can only give thanks to God. How might God be inviting you to give more freely today? Of your money, sure, but of your time, your gifts, your experiences, your possessions as well. There are lots of ways to give. Every person shows up in the world seeking to be seen by someone. It's true. We can't deny that. But let's remember we are seen. We are loved. We are cared for. We have received an invitation. We have a seat at the table of our King, all by his wondrous, lavish, extravagant grace. So can we not trust him to honor and exalt when he sees fit? If we really take Jesus at his word here, we will live freely and give freely. And we can trust that we will be honored and exalted and repaid in some meaningful way at the right time, just as Jesus himself was. Let's pray. Oh, our God, we worship you again because you're not telling us to do anything you haven't done. You are the God who humbled yourself far more than any of us could ever dream or attempt or accomplish. We thank you for your example. We thank you for your love. We thank you that you are the God who sees. We pray that we would see you seeing us, and in that we might live freely and give freely to those around us in Jesus' name, and always for his sake. Amen.